Good morning. Happy Father's Day to the fathers. Open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 20. I know there is a current trend, maybe it's not so current of a trend, to comfort the women on Mother's Day and hammer the men on Father's Day. All I can say is, man up, men. Actually, if anything I say today sounds like hammering, please know it's aimed at me first. But stand with me to read God's Word. Matthew 20, we're going to read verses 20 through 28. This morning we're going to look at Christ-like manhood, what it is and how to encourage it. Matthew 20, verse 20. Then the mother of the sons of Zebedee came up to him with her sons. And kneeling before him, she asked him for something. And he said to her, what do you want? She said to him, say that these two sons of mine are to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left, in your kingdom. Jesus answered, you do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I am to drink? They said to him, we are able. He said to them, you will drink my cup. But to sit at my right hand and at my left is not mine to grant. But it is for those for whom it has been prepared by my father. And when the ten heard it, they were indignant at the two brothers. But Jesus called them to him and said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant And whoever would be first among you must be your slave. Even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you for your word. We thank you, Lord, that you are over your word. Thank you, Lord, that you will speak to us today as we contemplate what these words mean for us today what you would have for us as men and women and boys and girls and thank you lord that you will do the work that you intend to do in us and lord may nothing hinder that work may we not stand in the way of what you would want to do lord we lay ourselves before you we ask lord that you would have your way with us and we pray in jesus name amen call to Christ-like manhood. Jesus is our supreme model for manhood. But, due to the fall, there is role confusion. Creating the need for role clarification, which highlights a role commitment that God expects of us. The first problem is one of rampant role confusion. Confused men, young and old, litter the landscape. Our culture has perverted literally, quite literally, what it means to be a man. And so many men do not know how to be a man. Al Mohler says that we now face the phenomenon of perpetual boyhood on the part of many males. Refusing to grow up, these young men function as boys well into their 20s, some even into their 30s and beyond. 
An extended male adolescence marks the lifestyles, expectations, and behavior of far too many young males whose masculine identity is embraced awkwardly, if at all. When does a boy become a man? The answer to this must go far beyond biology and chronological age. As defined in the Bible, manhood is a functional reality demonstrated by a man's fulfillment of responsibility and leadership. It's like there's three portraits of manhood set up before us, given to us. One is from the world, and it is foolishness. Another is from fellow believers, and it's well-meaning but often misguided. And one is from God, as seen in His Word, 100% accurate. And role confusion isn't new. It was an issue in Bible times as well. Let me give you the story behind Matthew chapter 20, verses 20 through 28. And especially when you get to verse 28, which we, we, most of us probably have memorized, if you're a believer. You know the word, you probably know, Matthew 20, verse 28. But what's the story behind these verses, and especially that verse? You go back to Matthew chapter 19. In verse 27, Peter says to Jesus, We have left everything to follow you. So what is, what's in it for us, basically? What then will we have? And Jesus said, Truly I say to you, in the new world, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. And then Jesus said, Everyone who has left houses, or brothers, or sisters, or father, or mother, or children, or lands, for my sake, will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. But many who are first will be last, and the last first. What comes next is that Jesus foretells his death. For the third time now in the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 20, verses 17 through 19, Jesus is going up to Jerusalem. He takes the 12 disciples aside, and on the way, this is what he says to, him, to them. And he basically gives them a rundown of the final chapters of the Gospel of Matthew. He says, see, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death, and deliver him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified. And he will be raised on the third day. He said it to them very clearly. This was the third time now that he was predicting his coming suffering at the cross. And then, in verse 20, we see a mom comes up to Jesus and asks him a favor for her sons. It was an awkward request. She was asking for preferential treatment for her two boys. Her two boys happened to be two of the disciples. James and John. Now, here's the interesting thing. She remembered part of what Jesus said as recorded in Matthew 19, 27 through 30 about the reward, but forgot about the part about the first being last. It's easy how we forget, interesting how we forget certain things in the, in the Bible to latch on to the things that we want to hear. So she picks up on the promise of 
chapter 19, verse 28, and asks for her sons the two highest positions in the kingdom. This is her request. The mother of James and John. We know her name is Salome. Uh, she was amongst the women who cared for Jesus at the cross. She witnessed the empty tomb. A relative of Jesus, the sister of Jesus' mother Mary. And she was a mother seeking advancement for her sons. Not a new phenomenon. A mother seeking advancement for her sons by going directly to a person in authority was a well-known phenomenon. It's like what Bathsheba did when she sought the throne for Solomon from King David. Plus, she was family. But it didn't make it right. This request was not a good request. This was rebuked by Jesus. But, but I want to ask you a question. Do you know where her boys were? Her two boys. Where were they? When she was coming up to Jesus and asking him for this preferential treatment for her two boys. Where were they? Right next to her. Following after mommy. Holding on to her apron strings. Age-old problem. Women leading because men won't. Women doing the man's work and passive men standing idly by. Grown men following behind their mom as she marches up to Jesus. Now there's a lot of boys today walking around in men's shoes. Same thing back then. And to be fair, none of us would have probably done any different. We're not above doing what they did, looking out for their own best interests. There's more. Jesus replies, but it's very interesting who he replies to. The mom asks the question, the answer goes to the sons. Jesus' reply is, you have no idea in the world what you're asking for. You do not know what you're asking. And he said that in the second person plural, in second person plural pronouns here. He had asked the mom, what do you want when she came to him? In verse 21. But to the sons, in verse 22, which suggests something. It suggests that they put her up to it. That they asked her to do this. By the way, in Mark chapter 10, you see that uh, only the two sons are referred to. That they were asking this of Jesus. But Matthew opens up to us that his, their mom asked. It was weak, by the way. Weak. Selfish request. Verse 22, Jesus says, are you able to drink the cup that I'm about to drink? He's, he's looking at the two sons, at James and John. And their answer, amazing. We are, we're able. Amazingly ignorant self-confidence. The cup. The cup that he's referring to is his destiny. It's the cross. That he would take upon himself the sins of the world, that there the wrath of God against sin would be poured out to him without restraint. Poured out on him without restraint. Full force upon the sinless Son of God. And they're saying, we're in. And here is this sincere yet mistaken lady and her two boys. I 
what do you think the other ten were thinking? And they were mad. It says that they were indignant. I'm sure they were thinking, who do they think they are? Asking for such favored status. But don't think for one minute that they weren't thinking more of themselves, that they deserved even better treatment. Don't think that they were being altruistic and thinking, hey, you shouldn't ask Jesus for things like that. Oh no, they were thinking they deserved the same or better. Verse 25, Jesus says, hey, the prominent men of the Gentiles, the nations, lorded over them. They exercise authority over them. See, in that culture, greatness amongst the Gentiles was being in a position to lord it over people. That meant you were strong. For years, Israel had suffered under harsh Roman occupation and repression and exploitation, tyrannical rule. They knew what he was talking about. By the way, a little aside here, Jesus is not condemning authority. A lot of people will say, see, you're not supposed to exercise authority. There's no authority. Yes, but Jesus is not commanding authority, but the wrongful use or even the abuse of it. And he says in, in verses 26 and 27, it's not this way among you. It is not to be this way. Because you want to be great? Be a servant. You want to be first? Become a slave. Servant and slave. Um, Two words that usually weren't put with first. Speaking of being an indentured servant, owned, free to do only what your master wants you to do. People in those days thought of ruling, not serving as the preferred status. Ancient Greeks would say, here's a saying they had, how can a man be happy if he has to serve someone? The servant worked for hire. The slave was forced to serve. These were the two lowest positions in society. Jesus is saying, you want to be great? You want to be first? Take the lowest position. And by the way, the ideal servant, the ideal slave, lived to make life better for those they served. Then, Jesus unleashes the corker. Verse 28. Then he basically says, and that's me. He says, for the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. See, everyone else was looking out for themselves, and here's the sinless Son of God looking out for us. Looking out for the best interests of others. Philippians chapter 2 tells us to aspire to the same. Role confusion. A lot of role confusion going on. So our men don't know what to do. And it creates a need for role clarification. Dramatic role clarification. Drastic, realistic role clarification. From God, by the way, not the world's twisted version. But we need to go all the way back to the beginning of the Bible uh, to, to see where this starts. Go with me to Genesis chapter 2. Genesis chapter 2. Back to the first man, Adam, and which will pave the way for our look at the second man, the last Adam, Jesus Christ. 
But Adam was a type of Christ. A foreshadowing of Christ. But I want you to look at Genesis chapter 2 and one verse. Verse 15. Chapter 2, there's a retelling of the creation account. And in verse 15, it says, The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work and keep it. To work and keep it. He was to to work, cultivate, serve, cause to grow. He was also to keep, which means to preserve, to protect, to give ongoing care to, to give sustenance and life to. See, by God's design, men were given roles. And you boil them down, and, and they really are to serve and to lead. To serve and to lead. That's what working and keeping is pointing to. Men were meant to serve and lead. These two ex- uh, examples are, can be extrapolated out to every area of life, of a man's life, his marriage, his children, his work, his community interactions. In the church and in the world, all every place a man goes. And when he fulfills his calling as God intends him to, things go as God intends. But when he does not, things break down. And so role confusion goes all the way back to the first man. Look at verse 16. Genesis chapter 2, verse 16. The Lord God commanded the man, saying... You may surely eat of the tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. For in that day that you eat it, you shall surely die. Interestingly, in this retelling of the creation account, then God says it's not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him, fit for him. And so then he creates woman. But what you see here is that God spoke to the man, and the man had the responsibility to teach his wife God's word what God had said to him make sure she was secure in her keeping of it but the first man did not serve nor lead and therefore sin entered the human race and as a result God promised a savior Genesis chapter 3 and verse 15 and the curse But then he said this, I will put enmity between you and the woman. He's speaking to the serpent. He's speaking to the devil. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring, her seed. He shall bruise your head. You shall bruise his heel. It's speaking of Jesus. There's the gospel right there in Genesis 3.15. But now go to Genesis 5. One verse, verse 5. I just want you to see something. How old Adam was when he died. It says, thus all the days that Adam lived were 930 years, and he died. What that tells us? Adam wasn't the promised Savior. Abundantly clear back then, at that time, when he died. We see quickly that the savior was not going to originate from the first family it was clear that adam could not could not ever be the savior god would provide a savior in his perfect time 
And from the first family on, mankind was waiting for that Savior. And Galatians 4.4 4 tells us that at the right time, at the fullness of the time, God sent forth His Son, basically threw Him down to earth from heaven. The Greek word is ekbalo, literally expelled Him out of heaven to earth for good and sent Him forth to redeem. We come back to Matthew chapter 20. See, what the first man couldn't do, the last man did. The first man, Adam, was called to serve and preserve. What those two words mean, to, to work and to keep, to serve and preserve. He would worship God as he served in the garden. He would preserve what God had put under his care, under God. The last man, Jesus, was sent to do what the first man could not do, enabling those he saves to do likewise. Christ-like men are called to serve and lead. So simple to say, so hard to live. Christ-like men are called to serve and lead. To serve means to work and cultivate and build and grow. To lead is to preserve, to keep, to protect, to stand up for, to keep secure everything God puts in our care. See, man was put into the garden. It was a world of relationships and responsibilities to act out his God-given identity as servant and leader. Richard Phillips writes, that is the masculine mandate. To be spiritual men placed in real-world, God-defined relationships as lords and servants under God to bear God's fruit by serving and leading. See, men have God-given roles, relationships, uh, responsibilities. Uh, you can name them, go down the line, and uh, Christian, husband, father, worker, citizen, brother, son, and so on. God-given callings, God-given vocations. And they're fulfilled as we respond. They're fulfilled in God-honoring commitments. See, the rampant role confusion creates the need for role clarification. Christ-like men are called to serve and lead. But it highlights something. It highlights a radical role commitment that God wants from us. That's what Jesus was calling to them in Matthew 20, 28. How are we to respond? See, being a Christ-like man means that you're becoming more like Christ. That goes with the title, Christ-like. Becoming more like Christ. And He is doing a work in you to conform you to His image. You're cooperating with what God wants to do. So the idea is this, as we think about a a role commitment uh, based upon the role clarification that God gives... It's this, that God-fearing men, Christ-like men, are to fulfill, are to fill God-given roles, to fulfill God-ordained plans. God has a purpose that will be fulfilled as we fill the roles that He puts us in. So God produces Christ-like manhood through men who serve and lead in His strength. And He uses them in the church and in the home and in the world. As men fulfill their God-given roles, they're used by God to fulfill His purposes. 
Basically, a Christ-like man serves and leads. But how does he do it? We say he does it in God's strength. Okay, but, but how would that be characterized? Let me point out a few things. Number one, he does so, he serves and leads worshipfully. Worshipfully, he is a worshiper of God. He is focused on glorifying God versus serving himself. Vodi Bauckham says this, we need men with trained minds. We need men with godly biblical character. We need men with multi-generational vision. We need men who commit all their faculties to the glory of Almighty God. So the idea is that this Christ-like man who serves and leads does so worshipfully, and as he does so, he's a servant of, he's a, he's a, a, a student of Scripture. If he's worshiping God, he's going to study what God says. He's going to take seriously 2 Timothy 2.15. Study to show yourself approved unto God, a workman that doesn't need to be ashamed, rightfully dividing the word of truth. He will not neglect the word of God. He will study it. He will apply it. Think about Matthew applying the... In Matthew chapter 4, Jesus applying the word of God. Satan comes and tempted and tempts him, and, and Jesus says, it is written no, no less than four times using scripture he takes it seriously and a Christ like man who is worshipping God is convinced of scripture's sufficiency as 2 Timothy 3.16 tells us that all scripture is inspired by God and profitable for reproof and correction and training so that the man of God may be adequate and equipped for every good work he knows where to go and he's not just a student of scripture but he's devoted to prayer just like Jesus Devoted to prayer, he understands its priority. But he also works. He's working. He's engaged in something that God has given him to do. And by the way, a lot of men are out of work. So what's your job right now? It's to find a job, right? You're working at that. But a, a Christ-like man works. He serves God. He worships God as he works. I know it's... Um, Let's apply it to work for a moment. I know that, that, uh, that a lot of men set their work above other priorities in life, sometimes even above God. But man was to worship God through his work. When he was to, when he was to, to, uh, to work the garden, it wasn't just like, hey, I need something for you to do all day. Not that. It was, this is the way that are going to to worship me in in the sphere of life and and we get things mixed up we get things mixed up we we work at our play we play at our worship and we worship our work i know that many people idolize their work they allow it to overtake everything else and it is dis- detrimental but you, you don't go there and say well then work's not important what you do is you say, well, we know we were made for work and that we should be able to enjoy our work, but we must keep it in proper perspective. We've got to retain our primary identity in Christ as Christian men. Then we are free. Free to do what? We are free and encouraged to invest our time in our work and find meaning in it. Not all our time. I met a man this week who just took a a ministry position at a Christian camp. He is a cook, five-star chef. 
And he had, he had been working at a hotel, working 90 hours a week as an executive chef. And he, he says, my family was dying spiritually. I needed to give up the high salary. I needed to, to rearrange my priorities. And this opportunity came up, and, and, and I am right where God wants me to be. Here's what happens when, when you put work in its pro- proper priority, even in the terms uh, idea of worshiping God as you, as you work, you're free and encouraged to invest in your work and find meaning in it. And here's the questions you need to settle. Does your work glorify God? Or can you glorify God through your work? Does it benefit other people? Are you gifted for it? Can you do it? Do you enjoy it? Does it provide for your material needs? Does it help or hinder you from leading a Christ-centered life? If, if you can say yes to these, go for it. Enjoy the work that God has given you to do. Don't see it as a curse. See it as a blessing. Colossians 3.23, whatever you do, do it from the heart as for the Lord, not for man. Find joy in Jesus above all. Worship Him and enjoy what you do. There's a second way a Christ-like man serves and leads. Not just worshipfully, but humbly. Jesus said this, I am gentle and humble in heart. Well, a Christ-like man is a humble servant leader. Christ-like men are humble. If we are not humble, we are not Christ-like, period. If a man is arrogant, he is not Christ-like. And it is all right to be authoritative, but not authoritarian. Some men run roughshod over their wives. On the other end of the spectrum, some men run from their wives. They're afraid of them. Wouldn't want to do anything to upset her. How many times I've heard that? Christian men must overcome the stronghold of whatever stereotype you might have latched onto what the world and our culture portray as a real man and realize instead as Jerry Bridges wrote, the humble working man toiling faithfully at his job, nurturing and shepherding his wife, and seeking to bring up his children in the discipline and instruction of the Lord conforms to God's picture of a real man. That doesn't mean if you're not doing some of those, you're not a real man. It just means that if you're doing those things, you don't have to look elsewhere for what it means to be a real man. You're doing it. And and marriage and parenthood are probably the two areas that we fall short the most. By the way, you look back in Genesis and you see that a wife is called to be a suitable helper, corresponding to man, equal in worth, yet different. Different role, different calling, different makeup. You can just look and see. The Bible says a husband is to love his wife. Very clear. Well, a husband loves his wife not by giving her everything she wants or by letting her run wild, but by serving and preserving her, by shepherding and watching over her, by protecting her and leading her, by laying down his life for her. Laying down your life for your wife doesn't mean whatever you want, honey. But it also doesn't mean only what I want. We go to extremes, don't we? 
Here's what you do. Humbly admit when you're wrong. Humbly confess your sins. Humbly servant lead. There's a third thing. He doesn't just uh, lead and serve worshipfully and humbly, but boldly. People don't like to put humble and bold together. They go together. A Christ-like man is a courageous servant leader. Courageous strength. Elizabeth Elliot says this, The world cries for men who are strong, strong in conviction, strong to lead, strong to stand and suffer. I pray that you will be that kind of man, glad that God made you a man, glad to shoulder the burden of manliness in a time when to do so will often bring contempt. So let's apply this to marriage. Let's apply this to marriage. I think it can can, um, safely be said that passive husbands are killing their wives, not literally. And aggressive wives are killing their husbands. But they get aggressive a lot of times because their husbands won't lead. Most men are afraid to lead. Due to the fall, there's this harmful desire for control by the woman and a destroying self-absorbed focus outside the relationship by men. The good news is that a Christian couple who has been forgiven and sanctified by God in Christ are able to show compassion and kindness and humility and gentleness and patience to one another. See, a wife needs a husband who honors Christ by honoring her. If you're married, your first concern, men, needs to be your wife's spiritual welfare, her spiritual well-being. You are called to build up her faith and her hope in the Lord Jesus Christ through your ministry of the word and prayer in her life, first and foremost. I think the number one thing that Christian couples don't do is read the word and pray together. And that's probably your first calling to do as you care for her spiritual well-being, man. The biggest hurdle is your own sin. It's my own sin. One writer says that the husband protects his wife so she feels safe from verbal abuse, from ridicule, from scorn, especially his own. For those are darts that pierce her tender heart. Two branches of the military share the same motto because they come from one another. And men, if you know these, you can go ahead and say them with me. Honor, courage, Commitment. The Navy, the Marines. By the way, don't be like that guy in Saving Private Ryan, that cowardly dude at the end, who stood idly by while his comrades were being mowed down by the enemy. My dad was a Los Angeles policeman for 30 years. Their motto is to protect and serve. That's what Christ-like men are called to do. Protect and serve. Another thing that a Christ-like man does is he serves and he leads. He does so relationally. Relationally. Worshipfully and humbly and boldly, but also relationally. He's a compassionate nurturer. Like Jesus in Matthew 9, 36, he sees the the multitudes and, and, and has compassion on them. Let's apply this to parenting. Fathers need to think of yourself, think of yourself like this, like a farmer. A farmer. Isn't that cool? Farmer, what does he do? He plants good things. So think of yourself as a farmer planting good things in your children's hearts. 
What happens to fathers, we too often assume too forceful of a stance, so we're harsh, or we're too weak, and we're passive. 1 Thessalonians 2.12, go there with me. 1 Thessalonians 2.12. Paul is talking about his ministry amongst the people there. And here's what he says. He says, you know, he had said earlier that they were like a mother tenderly caring for her, their children. Wonderful. Verse 12, he says, we exhorted you. Each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God. Just like a father with his children. Those are strong words, right? Exhort. You know what exhort means? Encourage. Console to a particular way of life. Comfort means to encourage, <laughs> to stay on course. Charge means to summon them as a witness and to solemnly charge them. But all three of these words have elements of grace and truth in balance. So we need to uh, apply appropriate leadership in our homes, men, not demanding, not domineering, not angry. A good farmer displays just the right emphasis of strength and gentleness. So here's what you plant in your, in your kids' hearts. Plant the seeds of your faith in Christ. Plant a firsthand picture of grace and mercy. Plant a love and hunger for the truth. Plant a vision for the godly man or woman that they can become. Have faith that they have the gifting and capacity needed to serve God faithfully in whatever God may call. But then think about what activities, what investments, what commitments are going to foster those things and do those things. Our young men are especially at risk, gentlemen. Steve Farrar said, Fathers are to sons what blacksmiths are to swords. It is the job of the blacksmith not only to make a sword, but to also maintain its edge of sharpness. It's the job of the father to keep his son sharp and to save him from the dullness of foolishness. He gives his son that sharp edge through discipline. You can look in Hebrews 12 and see how God disciplines us as sons. And the question, what father is, it, is there who doesn't discipline his son? If he doesn't, he doesn't love him. The other thing is this, is that men need friends. Men need friends. Relationally, if you're going to serve and lead, you've got to have friends. And your wife and your kids can't be your only friend, guys. They're great. They're, you, you love them, but you're going you're gonna to just weigh them down if you're their only friend. You need friends. You need to engage. There's an epidemic loneliness among men. There's an epidemic loneliness among men in churches. You've got to seek accountability and not hide. You've got to you got to initiate. You say, well, I'm, I'm, I'm a quiet guy. I'm shy. I don't care. I love you. But you know what? Get up and initiate some relationships with some other men. And include other people. Bring them along. Last thing. A Christ-like man who serves and leads does so intentionally. He does it on purpose. He engages when tempted to be passive. See, Jesus knew his mission and he wants us to know ours. We're to serve and lead on purpose in every realm of life as appropriate. And don't go walk into a room and just take charge. It's a two-way street, though. Two-way street. Men need to embrace their calling by obeying God and obey God in it. 
but women can do a lot to encourage it by respecting their husbands putting him down telling him he's not a leader that's not going to get him there and children enable it by honoring their father considering what he says to be valuable and and listening and treasuring that in in your heart but men must lead the way you know why this mom had to go and take up for her sons because they didn't now if they would have gone they would have got a sharper rebuke from jesus if it was just them i i'm convinced but they should have gone even though it was a bad request have your mom go do it for you come on what's that that really matthew 20 28 for the son of man did not come to be served but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many that's what he came to do and a ransom is a price you pay to buy a slave or prisoner's freedom and the ransom is offered to god here was offered to god to satisfy his just wrath against sin and for by the way for many means in the place of many it points to christ's substitutionary sacrifice an exchange substitution for all who accept his payment for their sins that's the basis of the doctrine of 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 the substitutionary atonement right there this verse the work of christ on the cross involving the greatest cost of all the life of jesus Back in verse 22, Matthew 20, verse 22. Jesus says, you don't know what you're asking. Are you able? And they said, yeah, we're able. I don't know if they were thinking of David volunteering for, to kill Goliath because they knew they were, he was going to get a great reward or something. I don't know what they were thinking. But they had not yet caught a vision of the martyr spirit. But they would. Here's what Jesus said. Uh, you know what? You will drink it. You will drink it. See, Christ's cup was the cross. Think about it for a moment. James the first of the 12 to suffer a martyr's death. Acts chapter 12 and verse 2. John, suffering persecution and exile, was reportedly the last. They didn't know what they were asking for then, but later, indwelt by the Spirit, they rose to the occasion. Jesus made them Christ-like men. And he will do the same for you as you will cooperate with him. Because God-fearing men are to, be, are to fill God-given roles to fulfill God-ordained plans. And God's image in our lives has been marred by sin. But God is in the process of restoring that image so that men who are redeemed from sin through Jesus Christ are freed from bondage to sin to live for the glory of God in every realm of life. And the Christ-like man's greatest desire to honor God and so that others would see something of the glory of God in him. Let's pray. Lord God, thank you for your word and please make us Christ-like men. Enable us to get out of the stands and into the game. Enable us to see that there is a battle for the souls of men and women and boys and girls going on and that you want us to play our part. Lord, lead us, guide us, give us grace to engage. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.